Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 411. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. This week's interview is with Ryan Berman. Ryan is co-founder of Courageous Leadership, a consultancy that helps you believe again. He's co-host of the Courageous Podcast with Ryan Thompson and author of the book, Return on Courage, a business playbook for courageous change. In this conversation with Ryan, we discuss the role of courage in entrepreneurship and in big business. We look at some of the courageous myths, building a courage brand, the importance of courage in driving purpose in your organization, and a bunch more. You'll find all the show notes on mintodile.com. Please consider dropping your rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Ryan Berman. So you are the other half of the Courageous podcast on which I was invited to be on. You are co-founder of Courageous. You're the author of The Return on Courage in Business, which is so goddamn necessary. Ryan, how do you like to describe yourself? I'm just a normal guy. I'm a simple guy. You know, who has time to waste on all, all the puffery, right? But I'm a recovering ad guy. Love storytelling. Uh, moved to California to write movies. I've basically been living one since I got here. And uh, for a long time, I was of the mindset I was, I'd rather entertain 2.2 million people that have 2.2 kids. And then I had 2.2 kids. And, uh, but I, but I still just love the idea of the story and what the narrative can do, especially when it's a truthful narrative. Well, so if you're average, normally you come from Chicago. Yeah, I'm not, you know, I flew over Chicago many times. <laughs> I mean, that's just an ad. That's an ad joke, right? Um, so I, I loved your book, uh, this, this whole notion of courage. And I feel like it's a really timely topic. You write in your book, and, and this is just for starters, that there's a, a decline in entrepreneurial activity in the US. I, I was deeply saddened when I read that I hadn't really t- chimed into it. Do you put that down to a lack of courage? What, what's going on? Why is in the United States, the, the land of entrepreneurialism on the decline? Um, well, first of all, I still think we're doing all right in that space, but from what it used to be to what it is now, it, it, it seems to be slipping. And I think it just comes down to, to risk. I think it comes down to reality of where we are as a, as a nation. Uh, but I do think there's still this feeling that and it's cliche for a reason that anything is possible here in the States. Uh, but yeah, it does come down to courage and it does come down to taking risks. And, you know, I'm on record saying if, if you're risk averse, unbeknownst to you, you're courage averse. And companies that have risk management departments, I'm like, well, where's the courage management department? Like, it's the same conversation. It's a flip in the switch in the mind. And if you can get companies to think about seeing it that way, then maybe they can experiment a little bit more. Yeah, there's still a country where we call it capital venture or venture capital, because in France, they call it capital risk. The exact same activity is called capital risk. And hmm. boy, can that talk to you about their courage. So on the, on the, on the side of that, you know, normally entrepreneurs, that's where all the courage is happening. You got to take the risks and go out there and bust your butt and, and make it happen. 
But if that's on the decline, God knows what's happened in business, in big business, because if there's one place which would seem to me to have a complete lack, total lack thereof, would be big business, because I think all the systems seem to to squeeze it out. What's your take on that? So I speak fluent metaphor. I think this is a good time to, to go into metaphor. And I think, and I think when, what I'm about to share, it might not be private businesses, but public businesses. So you know that time when like you try to run something by your parents and there's no way, they're just too, they, they're too far away from the truth. Like you're Roman high school hallways, you know what's cool. You see it every day. Your parents are like trying to tell you what's cool and what isn't. Like even that alone is not cool. Bad. That's kind of what's happened. You know, you have all these public companies that have these boards now that are too far away from reality, but all the power is with the board and they've got the money and they've got the influence. And so they're trying to tell companies what's right and wrong. Why aren't we doing it this way? And guess what? When they were in charge in their businesses 30 years ago, 40 years ago, even the idea of purpose wasn't a real thing. It was money. In fact, those very same people told me to put my head down and shut up for 25 years to work for a gold watch. And that's who's now calling the shots across many, many boards. And again, I, I want to be careful and, and nuanced because this is not the case everywhere. But when Lawrence Fink, who's running BlackRock, sends a, a note out to all of his CEOs about the power of purpose, and you, you've got $6 trillion in assets in your portfolio, uh, he doesn't do this for good press. He's doing this, this call for courage, this call for purpose, right? Because he knows what the future looks like. And Minter, you know, I kind of have this like lucky sort of middle ground that I get to sit in as a translator, where you know because I've run companies with the next generation, I know what really inspires them. And they're not that interested in money. I mean, they're interested in money. They want to make money, but they want to make a difference. They want to make a dent. And if we've learned anything here in the States, politics is not going to do it. It's going to be coming from corporate America. Corporate America actually is responsible for saving humanity. And that's where we're taking this conversation. We're seven minutes in. I love it. So if you're in, in working in big business, because I mean, that's sort of generally where I roll taking courage into the business, what are the areas where you need the most amount of cojones? Because you, know, you talked about purpose, but I, I kind of feel like there's a need to take risks on launching something kooky or putting out there something that might be politically less correct. There's riskiness in so many other areas. Where do you see the, the biggest opportunities to impose that courage? Yeah, I think it's important to... Um... I don't think I can answer this question without kind of sharing the process that I went through mm -hmm. to land on the differences between what, what is courage and what isn't courage. And like, when you ask me like point blank, like who am I? And I'm like, I'm just a simple guy. Like I really believe that I, I am a, a compensated observationalist. Like this, this, it's not like I'm being courageous. I just got a front row seat to see how others who are being courageous are doing it. And then I tried to connect the dots. And so even with return on courage, to me, this was a thousand day listening tour where I got to sit with the brave, the bullish and the brainiac. And on the brave side, it was Navy SEALs and it was astronauts and tornado chasers. And like, how do they do what they do? Why do they do what they do? They like a Navy SEAL knows at some point they're going to see live rounds and yet they do it anyway. 
So I was curious of like the training and the, and the mentality. And then on the bullish side was really where I saw the C-suite had a, had a front row seat, many lunches with like Eric Ryan at method. Uh, was the founder of method. Soap. Uh, Russell Wallach at Live Nation, Russell Weiner is the president of Domino's, people at Google, Apple, Amazon, Harvard. And the big aha coming out of that was, wow, how is it that the largest companies on the planet are also the most agile? You would think it was the little company that could be nimble. But what I was learning from these big companies, so it's not all big companies, some big companies were, were, were putting process, resources, and infrastructure for their pivots. And then the third B was the Brainiac. So I went to television radio school, had no idea how we were wired, took zero courses on that. And so I wanted to study the brain, clinical psychologists, Cambridge PhDs, John Asaraf, who's the CEO of Neurogym, co-writer of The Secret. And then you throw all that in the soup and you come out with a pretty clear process of what it takes to reinvent a company. And I look at what we're really talking about is change, right? So how do you almost take the courage out of courage, right? And make it as easy as possible for companies to do what they need to do. And it's as simple as, do you want to stay relevant or die? And like, if you look at it as that simply, then it's like, what do you have to do? So for starters, I see myself a bit like a change mechanic. It's like, you go, you go look under the hood of these companies and you realize it, a lot of this is going back to the basics, right? It starts by looking at the values of the company. Are they bullshit? Are they CYA values? If your values are on page 44 of a handbook and you, you pull them out, dust them off to fire somebody, those are the wrong values. <laughs> like those are, that's a reactionary tale. Now, if the values are actually driving the behavior for rewarding people off the values, if, if your 26 year old employee cannot remember the values, you have the wrong values. If you haven't thought about your values once during the pandemic, you have the wrong values. It's time to go back to the basics and make choices. And I think that's the other thing is that big business doesn't like to make choices, right? They, 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 they make little bets, little bets, little bets, little bets all over the place versus making a point of view choice. And so even, you know, an example for courageous, our, our values are, are prioritized. There's four of them. Sacrifice is the number one value. That is number one. We have a survey that goes out to our clients and they actually rate us on sacrifice, like, and we rate them. And that, that forces hard conversations. The most important thing is the most important thing. Like how we actually declared what the most important thing is. So we're trying to be really intentional about those values that create behaviors. Love it. That's the problem is that we're not seeing that from big business. Yeah. So that notion of, of having the courage to take the big decision, the one that can piss off some of your clients, some of your distributors, but you're going to put your money where your mouth is. And, and in the story that I have, when I was working on Redkin, um, the, the guy who ran the U.S. business, a guy called Pat Parenti, and with uh, some help from some amazingly intelligent people, they, we, we crafted with the entire team. So it was a collective decision. And as soon as we get into a sort of a consensual or collective, usually that's a warning sign for, oh, shit, we're going, you know, we're going very medium. But the, the decision that we had to take was to invest 80% of our resources in one of four categories. So ipso facto over invest and therefore under invest in others. And how do you decide that? Because this one might be really profitable. This is the one that all our customers like. 
And, and boy, was that an interesting process because we could have easily just from a boardroom decided it, but we enrolled the top 100 players in our team to participate in the making of the decision so that when it came to implementing it, they were part and parcel of the decision. So I have to have my hat tip off to, to Pat for, for A, taking the plunge in terms of being courageous and two, in being courageous enough to delegate the decision, if you will, with the team, because that also takes courage to say, wait, they know what they're talking about too. Yeah. So, hopefully we've hired, hopefully we've hired, right. right? <laughs> do you, do you really trust your team or not? Right. Cause that's a data point too. Totally. And so at the very top, you talked about truth, the ability to explain the truth and, and how we sugarcoat, we feed people what we think they want to hear it feels like that's also a big issue, both in small businesses, but it's certainly in big business. So you're bringing up a, a, like a touch the hot stove moment for me. And uh, I, I'm kind of over the word leadership, the word, not the idea, right? Because to that, for that exact same reason. So I think, I think poor leaders turn leadership into cheerleadership and they start rah rahing to the team. And that, that could work with like, your bottom 20%, but your top 20% see right through the bullshit and actually de demotivates them. So, um, you know, you got to remember I'm a writer and so I'll make up words. I'll, I'm that guy. I have no problem doing that. Um, I like the word believership. Cause I think the sole goal of leadership is, is believership to make believers out of your team. And, you know, you know, you probably remember two bosses along the way, right? The best boss and the worst boss. I have a lot worse the lasser. <laughs> you know, it, well, it's a reality, right? I mean, it's easier to spot the bad boss. Well, it's probably easier to spot both, to be fair, because it, it's sort of sad. Um, you know, we had a guest on our on our Courageous podcast who recently said, I think people aren't working for leaders anymore. They're working for bosses because I don't see a lot of leadership out there. And so that is the opportunity. I mean, that is the opportunity. Now the question is, to your point, how do you make believers really? And you even make believers or fake believers. And sadly, fake believers, they don't wear a t-shirt on their, across their chest that says fake believer in the office. When you used to go to the office, they just nod and smile and collect a paycheck. And when you turn around, they're talking shit about the culture and productivity starts to drop and they tell everybody how they would do it differently. And so how do you make a believer? You know, I think, I think it goes back to First of all, having something to believe in, like, have we landed on our purpose? I think some of the basic courtesy respecting makes believers. I think once you have something to say, repeating makes believers. And I know this is incredibly annoying for leadership to say the same thing over and over again for a thousand straight days. But, but your team is looking for consistency. They're looking for that. Okay, this isn't just an idea. This is a plan. We have been on this plan for three years. And then what I loved about the story that you shared is that, you know, what a surprise in the sharing economy that this plan should be shared across the team. And so if you've hired well, whether that's a shared decision or it's a, hey, this is not a shared decision, but this is going to be shared on the execution side. You need to know why we're doing the things we're doing. Um, we're kind of back to the, to the beginning. Like the whole point of the values also is to take 
the guesswork out of decisions and hopefully take some of the emotion out of the decision. So if you say you stand for innovation, right? That's our number two value in the company. I'm this, it's not ours, but like, let's say it was. And then we see, no, we see no risks. We see no innovation. We see, we see no investment in that space. Then it's, it's just talk. It's not real. And your, your smart people know that. When, you, when we talk about courage, you, you're, the way you position it in your book is that you, you kind of create a process to el- eliminate the, let's say, the risk of it by knowing what you're doing, informing yourself. When you mention the Navy SEAL, um, it, it makes me think of a, another issue, which is when you have, and, I, and as you know, I've, I've met many veterans of, of uh, several wars, and when you've seen what they have seen, yes, they will choose to go back into it. Of course, there's things like PTSD and so on. But once you've got that high involved, that adrenaline drive of that kind of a rush of doing stuff, it feels like the rest becomes very mundane. And so you see when the veterans come back to having to live a nine to five life and, and, and working on the riveting line, as opposed to shoot em ups in, in miserable conditions and brand of brothers work. The, the mundanity of, of a lot of work is, is boring, just like for spying. A lot of times you're just sitting there and actually just looking. There's three minutes of excitement. But in the case of being courageous like that, do you see people developing that courage and then actually getting bored of the uncourageous? Oh, God, what a great question. Um, I think that it just comes down to evolving your purpose. Because you can make a case if, just to use the Navy SEAL example, that, that, you know, this is like classic storytelling 101 as well. You know, the hero, you know, this is Joseph Campbell shit, right? Like the, the protagonist thinks the treasure is one thing and it turns out to be something else, right? The Navy SEAL, maybe they played video games growing up and wanted to shoot it up. But once they got in there, they realized, wow, I am part of a band of brothers. And so I think the purpose part and the team part, feeling part of something where the stakes are really high, I think that's that's what like that's the takeaway on that and when they come back the challenge is a different challenge it now how do you take find another purpose for this world and i think when you don't find that purpose is when you really see the ptsd you haven't it's not their fault maybe but have you graduated to the next thing that lights you up the next band of brothers the next team mm-hmm. i think well, that's what society's yeah. fault as well they're landing back in and and we the civilians don't know diddly about that type of life. And we're like, well, what's your problem, mate? You know? And, and, and so maybe society also sometimes doesn't help them land. We can do better having more empathy how, in that regard. How could we, how could we, I mean, how, we, how could we, like, we, we can't possibly fathom what they've seen. And so I do think it's interesting you know, you can only go off of your lens, right? And you and I both being in the leadership world, like what a surprise that you do see many SEALs or people who have served in the military, right? Who are self-starters land in leadership and they find their next purpose, right? How do you build sufficient teams? I've been part of that at the highest level. It makes total sense. Now, very different 
right? There's still, I still talk about the wars of business, right? I mean, you know, you could see it. Yeah. You even talk about the, the orientation, right? You're, you're in a company, your orientation's like eight hours and you're handed a gun to like, you know, when you're in the military, you get 16 weeks, 16 weeks of, of boot camp. Very different. Courage boot camp. You know, there's so many things that are interesting in the military. And then there's some uninteresting things like the hierarchical nature of it, traditionally speaking. But I've seen that obviously in the military, in the experiences and uh, let's say conversations I've had with officers, they too have been changing to be much more agile because it's no longer send over 100,000 people over the trenches. They're working in little platoons. They're working within society. So they actually have to develop empathy to be able to talk to somebody who's behind a mosque to know whether friend or foe. And that kind of a conversation is not in an action place, but in a real human place. And so a lot of the leaders, I think, I mean, from the military are, are becoming better equipped at dealing with the messiness and the humanity of leading just a regular old business. Yeah, I think, again, the, the metaphors are there, right? And uh, for, for whatever reason, I, I find that they, there are the same problems. I, again, I don't want to get into military too deep, but think about your business for one second and where you're, you're reacting to something right now. Right. And I, and I don't believe when, like, even with the pandemic, I don't see your response to the pandemic as a courageous act. I see it as a resilient act. That makes total sense. Right. So if like change is happening, whether you like it or not, right. So just, I'm not saying good has not come out of this, but when change is driving you, like it's the last 15, 18 months, that is resilience. And when you drive change, that is courageous. Oh, right. And well, so the interesting thing I was thinking about was when the, the military person comes back from the front and has to readapt their purpose, somehow they, they need to maybe keep their purpose, but find an application of it that fits in with their purpose. And that's that's the, tr the trick. And so we are now in companies facing this pandemic. We need to have our purpose. And now how do we need to adapt in order to still fulfill our purpose, but maybe in a different way, because we can't do speeches in conferences. We have to do it in a different way if you're a speaker. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and again, but that's not, to me, that is a resilient, that this is resilience at play right now. And, and you need to be intentional and conscious of whatever your purpose is. Now, how do you apply that in this new arena, right? And you and I are same camp, right? We both feel we have something to offer and to contribute that can help. And just a, one more point on the if you're listening and you run a budget you know but you and i both came out of marketing and you have a contingency budget right now which some people would call your oh shit budget right better have a one. contingent a contingency budget is still a resilience budget right it is a response to something did something work did something not work did something work put more money into it and my suggestion is also create a courageous budget I know, I know money is tight and resources are tight, but where are you going to be proactive? Where can you experiment? Where can you hit the gas versus responding to something? Yeah. Well, that was that, that's Pat's idea that when we were at Redkin was actually be the, have the courageous budget, put 80% of our resources against one of four categories. And that was, that was definitely a, an explanation, a exploration of courageous budgeting. So Ryan, uh, you were, we're talking about truth just now. And uh, it, it feels like 
there that with with truth and courage there's also imperfection and being truthful truth and imperfection seem like strange bed partners in in your you talk about believership and i really enjoyed that expression talking about trying to convert people into your believership you were talking about the strength of the board what are the let's say how would you try to bring along the board and your shareholders into the believership of your purpose how does that process happen because they 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 they, they hold the purse string they hold the power purpose so oh, that's a softy that's a whatever thing you know that i need hard facts and numbers purpose ryan yeah i think this again when 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 you're if your board is that far away from what the next generation demands i would start i would start there uh and i don't want to lose where your thought on truth and imperfection because i i think we're just talking about humanity right so again one of the stories along the way for me and with return on courage and i think the universe is a funny place that the that literally my first in-person interview was with an astronaut named loretta hidalgo she's a founding astronaut of virgin galactic so she was up the road for me in california this is back in 2015 when i started the research process and and um, at this point i have my own fears you know i'm not qualified to write a book i've never done that before the least qualified one in my family by far. If there was family feud, I'd be the last one on the list. That's a, do you guys have family feud over there? No, but at least I know what it is. We, we've actually done some family feuds for family Zooms during the pandemic. So definitely everyone in my family is aware, but that doesn't mean everyone else is. But Google it. Google it. Okay. Anyway, just means that I, I was very afraid to write that book. And then layer on the fact that I was afraid, like, don't ask the astronaut a stupid question, right? I, I got, let me make sure I look smart to the astronaut. And um, as I get up there, when you could do in-person lunches, before my tray had even hit the table at lunch, he says to me, so what makes you qualified to write a book about courage? Well, touche astronaut, you know, it's like, well, I have been writing yeah, right one-liners on, you know what I mean? Like, Pithy one-liners on Twitter for a living. That's pretty courageous. And uh, she's like, no, 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 no. You, you need to go. For, like, I didn't tell you to write this book. That's that's not what I said. That's what you heard. And you, you part of your journey needs to figure out why you're writing this particular book. And she proceeded to tell me that, that her definition of success was when there's no daylight between the personal you and the professional you. Love that. God, that's a great. I need to quote that one, Ryan. It's so good. And, you know, that's the one that had me driving back in silence with my knuckles in the 10 to 2 position back from Orange County. And you realize, I realized that this book wasn't about what I thought it would be. And I was writing the book because I needed it first. And so I think to go back to your actual question, what moves people? What drives people? Why are we chasing relevance? It's humanity. You know, it's real it's not the bullshit it's not the money the money is a if you do it right and you're and you truly serve the selling part comes it's it's not a line it's it's for it's a real thing and you have this whole generation of workers that if they're not inspired by you leader and they're really good they're gonna go work somewhere else they're gonna find something else to do i 
I always joke that the next generation, they want to have their cake, they want to eat it too, and they want the cake to be gluten-free. And your job as the leader is to create that environment where they actually are inspired by the work you're doing. It's not a hoodwink. And so you got to go back up to your board and try to un teach them what this really is driving the world. That generation of worker, if you don't want to have a nutrition problem on your hands, you need to articulate like they think we messed up their world. And the good ones are going to do what they need to do to solve it and to fix it. And they think if you're not part of that, like if you're just going to work your eight hours as a robot and then do it at home, you're missing the mark of what's possible. And that we're kind of full circle back to the Lawrence Fink note to the CEOs about like, again, it's not about the press. It's like, this is the reality. Like where's the impact that your business is making? Are you truly serving? Are you making the world better? Cause if not you, it's going to happen out of a garage from somebody it's not about the competitors you see now. It's the one you don't yet with the hooded sweatshirt people plugging away to try to make the world a better place. So that's why we need to, there's a sense of urgency now to put a sensible plan in place to evolve forward. That's where the courage comes in. So I had a number of thoughts running around, scurrying around my head. And so I read uh, Gallup said that in 2016, something like 27% of people left their job the year before in the United States voluntarily. And the thing that's going through my mind, and this is part of like a truth telling store side, is I think we have very soft, thin skin in business. And so while it is the leader's job to make the 27% stay, if you will, I also feel like this whole idea of ethics of work, that's a, that's a bad word almost, you know, and hardship and doing the shit. These, no, 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 I don't need to do that. I look at my intelligence, look at my big degree. Uh, I want to do things that are meaningful and purposeful from day one. I want to be the CEO day two. And, and somehow we, we're, we're not allowed to say these things because Johnny's perfect and Johnny's allowed everything. Yeah, just look, I, I feel like my my mantra is patiently relentless. You know, I, I I think you're spot on, like not everybody should be branded as special. Um and and sometimes we're doing that. The, the it's what is it, the snowplow parent is what we call it here. It's like just laying down the the path. And to your point, yeah, it's going to take hard work. It's the just because you have a degree, the the MBAization of everything is kind of an issue. And, uh, so, how do you? To me, it's like, and it, it, let's go back to the beginning. If you're looking for a job for a first timer, you're you're really not looking for a job. You're looking for a mentor who can teach you the way the world works a little bit. Someone that you can honestly speak truthfully to. And that's that is the problem. Is that there's so much fronting. And we're so afraid. What if you weren't looking for a job? You were just looking for that mentor. Start there. It feels uh, in listening to you, Ryan, and I love connecting dots that in a world where we're trying to convince the board and the shareholders with Fink's backing on the, the courage necessary to, to do the big, bold purpose, it's the band of brothers element. If you get it right, it's the thing that 
obviates the need for the individual to feel all about me. It's, you know, my life and woe is me and I'm perfect and everything should come to me. You need to have some element. I think the word is sacrifice to use something that you might be familiar with (laughs) in Um. your, in your ability to be part of the gang, be part of it and know when to dial down the individual component and commit to and and you know participate in making the purpose come alive yeah again it, we're back to it's bigger than you so if the purpose doesn't feel like you're ready to wake up every morning and attack it how do you maybe re- reassess what your purpose is as a business and we we talk about uh, courageous how do we inspire 100 million people to like actually choose courage you know, fight fear. Like we see ourselves as like fear fighters. Not food fighters. So, <laughs> that one was taken. So how do you help them help, help our clients fight fear, create change and in an audacious sort of way, save humanity. That's what's at stake. And if we can help companies evolve, they can be responsible for like saving jobs. Right? They, they can actually be the ones that can create that, that little environment where that actually happens, their little nation where people want to stick around. So that's why I wake up every morning and there's joy, there's joy in that. There's true joy and it's okay to be afraid, right? It's like, that's not the issue. Maybe the, the, the question is, well, why, why are you afraid? Where are you getting stuck or where, where are you scared? Uh, why are we slower than we want to be? Why, how did our brand get stale? Those are my four S's, right? And so how do we address that? The um, comment you made uh, from Loretta, the astronaut, of course, I want to do a hat tip to another cosmonaut, um, Esther Dyson, who I had the chance to have on my podcast, who speaks fluent Russian and also a trained uh, lady uh, astronaut. Um, This notion of the personal north, your personal purpose it seems like a lot of people don't actually even know what theirs is at a precise level. And then you sign to co-opt other people's purposes. Oh, that sounds like nice one. That'll be mine. But they haven't done the hard work to write down and layer in, be strategic about the values that are not eye rollers as you write, but are, are real for me. And then the, I'm prepared. I won't give in to, these other set of values that the, I have to make an alignment with the ones that I hold dear and make sure there is some kind of overlap with the organization I'm working with. And if there isn't, you've misaligned and you should self-select to leave. And I think that's a good reason to leave as long as you've done the hard work. But if you haven't done the hard work and you're just like, oh, I'm going to go now, then you're not going to be satisfied. You're next on the other side of the hill. Yeah. I think we have a lot of work to do on ourselves. So one of the things that uh, you write about, and you, you mentioned a company at which you worked, as I understand it, Robin Hood oh. Brands. The CEO said um, that people are, are so much worried about their job preservation, where we should be in an era of personal responsibility. And I feel like taking responsibility as the leader, like Pat was doing for Redkin, we shared the decision, but he was the ultimate responsibility for the U S business. It feels like that's also something that's 
missing in a large way. How does one lean into personal responsibility? What's missing in our inability in business to take personal responsibility? It's funny, you could actually link the two conversations together. Because it starts with, do you really understand who you are? Have you actually done the hard work on your own personal core values? And I can tell you that like someone along the way, I didn't say this, someone once said to me, it takes you 40 years to figure out who you are and the next 40 to be that person. And look, people I'm sure get their way before I did, but that, that really resonated with me. We spend all this time scrolling social media and not enough time scrolling ourselves. And the North star that you talked about, it's not something out in the distance. It's something on the inside and you got to figure out what lights you up and, Another way to say it is like, why are you wired the way that you're wired? And I don't think this changes whether you're in your personal life or your professional life. If you know who you are, then you've got to figure out to your point, does it align with the values of the company? Can you show up every day? Because then it makes it easy to lead, right? One of my mentors said, uh, and actually what brought us together, brought us back together was, was my book. And he, he was, you know, typical New York City ad exec. His name's Ron Berger. He's like, tell me about this book you've been writing. And, you know, and I told him the whole thing of what happened the last 10 years of my life. And he said to me, I think the two most underutilized words in business are courage and no. And sometimes it takes courage to say no. And so... You can't say no unless you're clear who you are. Like, no, we're not going to do that. Here's why. You are prepared enough to have that conversation and you, and you know the why behind it. And I think great leaders, great leaders are not afraid to say no at the right times. Of course, the, a lot of times the no can also come from fear. Oh, well, we can't try that. We've never done it before. <laughs> There's a lot of those type of no's, know-it-alls. Right, they're the no it all, and no, no, no. We we this is how we do things around here. The irony is, I'd say a year later, we had this exact same conversation. That now the it the two most unutilized words is courage and yes, <laughs> yeah, let's try it. Right? <laughs> you know, this is the truth. It's it's like you know what? I don't know how this is going to go, but we know if we don't do anything, we're we're going to get passed. So one of the things, uh, and I'm not a religious individual, but uh, you, you, you talk a, a courage brand. So this is the idea of a brand that's courageous, as you write about it, willingly addresses its business fears by gathering enough knowledge, building faith, and taking swift, swift action. So we've got the yes to do, do shit, build up the knowledge so you're, you're more comfortable of where we're going. The building faith one was the one that really intrigued me the most. Tell, tell us a little bit about building faith. Yeah. So I think uh, to go back a step to, you know, let's take this out of the brand context. Cause yes, I think, I do think every brand on the planet sits somewhere between a coward brand and a courage brand. I really believe that if you just t- put your brand on timeout right now, your business on timeout and ask yourself where you are on, on the spectrum. Fine. But what does it take to know if you're doing something courageous and the way we define it is knowledge plus faith plus action equals courage. And it has to be all three. So like how often have you known something 
and you felt it to be true and then you don't do anything about it, like no action. So knowledge and faith with no action is paralysis. Um, faith and action without knowledge is a reckless move. So when people say, oh, I'm going to jump, that's courageous to jump out of a plane. No, that's stupid. That's careless. Without a parachute. Without a parachute. Yeah, I got to be careful, right? Like to me, that is, that's a reckless move. And from our research, we believe knowing something and taking action on it, but being numb on the inside, going through the motions, doing the same thing over and over again, knowledge and action with no faith, the status quo, that's safe. And so the way we describe faith is the feel. It's not the religious term of faith, but it is like, okay, how much do we need to know? And the more knowledge we have, the more we feel this is the right move. And the reality of it is, and I'm very sorry to the data people that are listening to the show right now, but you're never going to be able to wait for 100% of the knowledge to make a call or you, or you will get passed. But the more you experiment and the more you're picking up knowledge along the way, hopefully, the more it's dictating, okay, I feel this is the right move for us. And that little voice that talks to you in your head, that's the faith voice. That is the one where it's like, this is crazy. I'm going to get fired if I open my, my mouth right now. I'm in a room with 14 others. Uh, okay, here we go. Okay, that's a good voice. That is not a bad voice. That little voice is honoring your values. It believes you're doing the right move and you're afraid to do it. And that's okay. But that's the faith piece. That's the feel piece. It's the uh, proverbial leap of faith that happens when you plunge into with courage and knowledge into the action that you want to do. I want to finish, Ryan, on one small uh, other piece. You talk about um, courageous myths in your book. And, um, and so one of them that I, I wanted to read out, which is courage is about the journey and the desired destination is delivering something unapologetically meaningful. How do you describe and define meaningful? Well, I think the good news is what's meaningful to you might not be meaningful to me. And that's okay. Right? Just like not every product in the world is for everybody. You got to find your people. You got to find your tribe. Those loyalists that love what you're bringing to the world. And to that group, it's probably meaningful. So, yeah, I see the destination of courage is to, to land on something meaningful, but the way, the reason it's a myth is because of sometimes the media and sometimes movies treat courageous acts like a cherry on top moment when it's anything, but it is that hard work we talked about in the messy middle where you do need to say no, or you might need to say yes, but it's all rooted in the truth. It's all rooted in your values. And just to put another little pin on faith, you know, both of us are storytellers. We come out of marketing. I like to say no feel, no deal. So that's the faith part. You know, we're not robots. The robots have not taken over yet. So the importance of like, how do you like motivate your board is by keeping it real, being emotional and bringing the feel, you know, did you actually nail the part that moves people? So if you can move people, then you can move mountains and it's not doing it for the wrong reasons. It's like, Okay, does our purpose actually have a rally cry in it? Can you feel the rally cry and the why that people want to wake up every day, work together to solve whatever feat you're trying to solve? That feels like a good place to end our conversation. Ryan, thank you so much for being on the show, uh, dialed in from California. Um, 
tell us how people can track you down, hire you, of course, buy your book. What's the best way to follow you, Ryan? Start at ryanburma.com. See if you see if you like the content, and if you want the book, even returnoncourage.com or at Amazon. Ryan, thanks for being on this wonderful journey and being on the show. I enjoy the conversation, the banter, the obviously the imperfect the road that we're on to seek courage in ourselves, model that behavior, allow for the hundred million others that need it as well, and um, look forward to staying in touch. You got it, man. Uh, yeah, you and I are going to have a session where we can get over the pond at some point. We'll do it up. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find all the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. And if you enjoyed the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.